Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You're Reading. This week's episode will go alongside the blog post for November 11th. As always, in that post, I will link to all the books, the quotes, and the miscellaneous things that I'll be mentioning. You can find that entry on tbqsbookpalace.com. So we had our first taste of winter this week, like cold winter weather here. The other morning, I was walking the pup when it was only 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And let me tell you, 14 above is nothing compared to the dead of winter when we can get down to, I'm not even joking, the low of negative 25 with wind chills. Easily. <sighs> is it spring yet? Please? Sadly, I don't have any sort of recipe chats for you guys this week. I didn't really do much of any cooking or baking or anything else this week. But maybe next week I'll have something to share. About the only thing I can say is that chocolate marshmallow buttercream frosting that I told you about last week that I adore. I've been eating that, like, the leftovers of it all week long. It is A+, plus if you just spread it on some graham crackers. Fantastic. Or another option is just straight onto a spoon and into my mouth. That makes me happy as well. So let's move on to the Romance Landia chat, shall we? I didn't really do a whole lot of awesome or fun uh, conversations on Twitter this week, but Jen and a few other bloggers were discussing how to balance reading your favorite authors while also branching out and trying new authors, most especially authors of color. So this is a really important topic. It's so easy for us to share posts for books from authors of color, but if we're not actively reading and reviewing and recommending and talking about those books, well, then that means that we are partly at fault for just how whitewashed Romance Landia is, for just how whitewashed the genre and the industry is. It falls on us, the readers and the, and the bloggers and the reviewers, to do our part just as much as it falls on the actual publishers and editors to be more inclusive, to hire more than just yet another white author or another white editor or, you know, you get my point. And I know, I know that I am guilty as fuck when it comes to this. I know where I need to improve myself, and I'm, I'm working on it. When you have a TBR pile, when you have arcs piling up, it's so easy to just get lost in those, right? Those are, those are the main focus of what you're trying to read, or at least what I'm trying to read. And so trying new authors kind of gets put on the back burner for me. But I know that I need to change that. I need to make the time and the effort to pick up another author, to pick up women, especially women of color, who are writing amazing romances out there. What I'm saying is I'd like to encourage you to do the same, to work on this, because it takes conscious effort to try a new author. Um, rather than just sticking to your tried and true and probably white, let's be quite honest here, authors all the time. I know, like I said, it's easy to just stay in that lane, so to speak, that you've always been on. And it does take actual effort to say, nope, you know what, I'm not going to pick up this book that I have read this author 20 times before. I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to take a couple days and I'm going to pick out a new author and try that. I get it. It does It does take actual effort. That's not, um, that's not something that you just blindly reach for in your pile for a new author. So my suggestion to you is to make time, I'd say every month, maybe let's say just even once a month, I'd like more than that, but, you know, let's be realistic. Let's all make time at least once a month 
to pick up a book from an author of color. And if you're ever in need of a good recommendation for one, check out Women of Color in Romance. I will leave a link to their Twitter and uh, website and all that. They have a shit ton listed and they are always adding new titles every single week as new releases come out. They update their stuff. You can find so much there. Definitely recommend that. That is a great source of finding new authors of color and their books to read. There was also a couple fun discussions going on this week, not by me, but I was kind of watching them, about some outrageous sex scenes, especially more so in older books, but I think one or two of these books were maybe within the last decade or so, where there is sex or a blowjob or something while they are riding on a horse. We were trying to like draw stick figures all over Twitter and figure out what the hell was going on. And I don't think any of us still ever figured out how it's possible. I don't think it's possible. And I wouldn't actually recommend it. I would break my neck just riding a horse. No way in hell am I going to try and do any sexual acrobats while I'm on it. Goodness, no way. This entire discussion was actually started by Jennifer on Twitter, not the Jen that reviews for me. Um, I will leave a link to Jennifer's Twitter handle and to this discussion and everything. Let me know. Have you read any sex on a horse books? Because we want to know about all the what the fuckery. In fact, Jen might be doing a blog post about it in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for that. Moving on to the blog recap for the week. First, Jen reviewed Devil's Gamble by Michelle Eris, giving it only three stars. She said that this book had great potential, and that is a fantastic cover on it as well. But some things just didn't work well for her. Jen also brings up the importance of having a power balance between couples in a romance and how she doesn't like a wishy-washy heroine. Seriously, check out the review to find out more about that because I want to scream that paragraph of hers to the world. It is that accurate and important. I will say about the cover, it's a great cover, but when I look at this cover, I get more of a historical vibe for some reason, and I don't know why because it's not really got historical clothing on it necessarily, but it just doesn't quite scream contemporary with some suspense elements to it. I don't know, you let me know what you think about the cover. Then Annabeth Albert stopped by to celebrate the release of her newest MM romance, Wheels Up, which I talked about last week if you remember. She shares her top five action heroes from books and movies and teases you all with a super sexy excerpt from the book. I mean, it's fucking dirty and I highly recommend you go and read it and then pick up the book, of course. Come tell us who is your favorite action hero. Jen then took a trip back down memory lane with a throwback review of two 1986 Harlequin Presents, A Very Private Love by Melinda Cross and Forever by Lynn Turner. She gave them both three stars and said the heroines from both novels were great, but the heroes were total dicks. Which is often the case in old-school romance, to be honest. And, okay, even in some recent romances, too, to be fair. Finally, I have a sexy excerpt from Ruin You by Molly O'Keefe up on the blog, which I'll actually be talking about that book in today's book chat, so stick around for my thoughts on the book as well. There were also the usual posts that went up this week, Lusting for Covers on Sunday, New Releases on Tuesday, and Daily Book Deals Monday through Saturday. I apologize in advance to your one-click finger, while also encouraging you to go treat yourself to a new book. Or ten. I won't tell. Next week, Jen has a fantastic Let's Talk all about sneaky reprints, overpriced reprints, and how some of the old-school problematic shit is still alive and kicking in Romance Landia. And in some cases, it's being dragged back from the dead, and it needs to stop. Um, you do not want to miss that discussion. There will also be two reviews from Pat, both are five stars for her, and another throwback review from Jen for yet another Harlequin Presents title, so be sure to check back for all of that next week. 
As to my reading week, I managed to finish three books. I was really busy this week in my own life, but I also was having a very hard time concentrating when I did sit down to read. Hi, stress and anxiety? Fuck off. Thank you very much. Um, so hopefully next week will be better for me. Say hello to my dog again. Anyway, this week ended up being a bit of a mediocre week for me, with all three of the books earning the same three and a half star rating. So not bad but not something that wowed me either. So, without further ado, let's get into the book discussions. So first up, I finished Ruin You by Molly O'Keefe, or rather, M. O'Keefe, same author. This one releases on the 9th. Actually, I guess by the time you guys are listening to it, it's already out. <sighs> it's been a long day. So while my pure enjoyment of this story was practically a solid four stars, the story and, like, the character development itself was not flawless, and for the technical aspect of the story, I'd go with three stars, so I'm averaging it out to three and a half stars for the entire book. This one is in dual first POV. Penny is a chef. She has tattoos. Um, she had some really shitty parents. That's kind of the simplest way to put it without going into the entire plot and ruining a lot of stuff for you, so I'll just keep it at she's got shitty parents. So she's in hiding under a fake name and everything because of them and because of what stuff from their past and secrets that she's trying to keep for them and stuff like that. She doesn't really have very great things to say about either her mother or her father, but uh, sometimes you stick, you stick to family anyway for one reason or another. Simon is a journalist. He is an orphan when he was in his early, no, when he was in his late teens. He lost his mother to cancer and his father committed suicide a few days after. There's an entire story about what went down after that. Again, it ties into the plot. I don't want to spoil things, so I'm going to be vague. Simon holds like a deadly grudge against Penny's biological father. He owns a pharmaceutical company and because he charges such a ridiculous price for the drugs, Simon's mother, like thousands of other patients, couldn't afford it, and it might have been a drug that obviously wouldn't have cured the cancer, but might have helped them to live longer. It was taken to court about him charging so much, uh, he got away with it, and because of that, Simon basically wanted to kill him for killing his mother. That's the way that Simon looked at it, you know, especially as a 15, 16-year-old kid at the time. Now he is, I don't even know if they tell us the age, but it's probably been a decade or more, and he still holds that grudge. He still is out for revenge against Dale Simpson. Pretty sure that's what the guy's name is. So right now, Simon's task is to track down and find Penny, or rather Tina, which was her birth name, and he needs to find the information that she's hiding about her father and his dirty business practices and whatnot. Of course, he ends up falling into bed and falling for her during that time. So I did enjoy this one, and like I've said before, I really love O'Keefe's writing, which probably factors into it, but I can also take a step back and see where the weaknesses and the flaws were, and I was definitely left wanting more from this story. So like the pacing I found was kind of uneven. We don't spend a whole lot of time kind of wrapping everything up in the end. There's not as much character exploration and development as I wanted. I wouldn't call these two flat characters by any means, but I was definitely left wanting a little bit more from them. There's some insta-love going on here, and honestly not a lot of time to build the romance and the resulting happily ever after, so that again left me wanting some more. One thing that really got to me is Penny is horrible at her lies, and because she is literally hiding, being able to tell lies is a pretty damn important thing, 
but she is terrible at it, to the point that it was eye-rollingly horrible to listen to the lies that she was trying to come up with. But then again, we know that she's lying. Simon knows that she's lying, though she doesn't know that Simon knows that she's lying. Wow, that sounded really confusing, didn't it? <laughs> I hope you get my point there. I suppose you could say it doesn't matter, it doesn't hurt anything that she's so bad at lying then, but it did make for some annoying moments, and it took away from her character, really. Which may sound kind of weird, as if I'm saying she was a horrible liar and I wanted her to be a good liar. I don't know, that comes across as sounding weird, but I guess my point is, considering she's been hiding and on the run, and she's trying to start over and stay away from all this and keep all these secrets, I expected her to be better at lying than she was. Because that just didn't, it didn't seem plausible, I suppose, that she could be such a horrible liar and yet have been able to hide and keep the secret for this long. One good thing going on here was the chemistry between these two. This one, I would say, is not as hot as some of Molly's other books, just in terms of the number of sex scenes and stuff like that. But I'm still not complaining about that. It's just more of a fact. If you've read some of her other books, just kind of to give you a reference, this one, I would say, maybe is down a notch in the overall sexiness level. Their first encounter, uh, which is when he's still trying to get close to her and make sure that she is, in fact, Tina. So, you know, there's a little bit of the questionable aspect to it, I suppose, of, you know, he was partly trying to do it to get information and not... It wasn't entirely an honest seduction, but I don't know. That bothers some people. It didn't necessarily bother me because these two were truly attracted to each other, regardless of whether or not he was trying to get closer for information. So again, it, it didn't bother me. It could some. Anyway, their first encounter, they're out in an alleyway and he gives her a quickie finger bang with his hand over her mouth to muffle any sounds because the business is right there and, you know, workers are still coming in and out. And he uses his other fingers to go down into her jeans. And all I can say is Penny is one lucky bitch. Damn, that was, yeah, not very long. Maybe a couple paragraphs, but uh, it got the job done. Literally. <laughs> For her, at least. And, you know, this holds true later on, too, when they finally get to the bedroom. Yeah, they've, they've got some chemistry, and Molly definitely still brings the heat, even if it's maybe a little bit less than some of her um, more erotic books than this. So can we talk about the cover for a minute, though? Because that is so not Simon, which is, I assume, who the model is supposed to be. You know, considering that Simon is the hero of the book, it's not Simon. <laughs> because Simon is described as having thick black hair that is often falling, like, into his eyes a little bit in, like, a flirty way or something. I can't remember for sure how Penny describes it. Um, this dude on the cover has short, slicked back hair. I think it might be dark hair. It's kind of hard to tell because it just cuts off his head right there. So that's, that's not Simon. The suit that the cover model is wearing, that doesn't fit Simon's character at all either. And then there's the fact that Simon's father's family was from Pakistan. His mother, I assume, was white. This cover model is pretty damn white, period. So that also doesn't fit what we're told about Simon. Do I like this cover on its own? Sure, it's a fine cover, but it just doesn't match, and that bothered me. This one was not a perfect read, and it did leave me wanting more from it. But you know what? For a quick read that still managed to make me a pretty happy reader, it wasn't bad at all. Uh, not my favorite from her, but definitely not a horrible book. This is book three in the series. I did not read book one or two. You could jump in here like I did. You'd be okay. 
There was a lot of quotes in here that I really enjoyed, and I share them, of course, on my Twitter, so I will link to them. One thing that Molly always does is she, she manages to write lines or dialogue that just speaks to me. And I think that's why even if the story or the characters or something isn't perfect, I still tend to overall like the book itself because I like a lot of those, you know, a lot of those lines, a lot of the writing that she puts into it. So I should have prefaced this whole thing by saying, trigger warning, there is mention of a attempted rape that went on in the juvenile, like, detention center type thing that uh, Simon and his friends were in. So just be aware that that is talked about, not necessarily in great detail, but... I mean, that's a subjective term to say great detail. If that's going to be something that triggers you, period, what does it matter if it is vague or spelled out word for word, right? So just just be aware that it is there briefly towards the first part of the book. Oh, dear God, it's not even, it's Sunday when I'm recording this part, and already my voice is like shot. So this is going to be a lovely podcast week, I am sure of it. <sighs> Next up, I finished His Wicked Reputation by Madeline Hunter narrated by Mary Jane Wells. I ended up giving this one three and a half stars as well. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And what's worse is I can't really pinpoint why I didn't love it. So it's that dreaded middle of the road book again, which is the hardest one to try and talk about. But let's see what I've got, okay? So Eva's family was landed gentry. But it's just her and her younger sister by themselves now. They lost their brother to a fever from a gunshot wound, and her parents have passed on as well. So she's struggling to keep afloat. Um, she's sold their furniture, stuff like that, and then she moved into copying some famous paintings that she found and then selling the copies, not the original painting. Gareth is the bastard son of a duke. He works as like an art dealer of sorts. He helps to broker art deals both there in England and also over in Europe. He's called back by his half-brothers to look for some missing art. Supposedly this was a task from the prince himself. So I bet you can see where that's going, right? She's been painting fake pictures from this famous artwork that she found. He's looking for missing famous artwork. Eventually, those two things collide and oops, it's the same thing. So the story was okay. Obviously, the mystery of the art isn't really a huge mystery to the reader, but we still don't know how exactly it ended up being lost and who did it and who was involved in all that until later. That's somewhat told in the last few chapters, but I still felt like we were left with a lot of questions about things. Now, I'm not sure if those questions are going to be answered in the next two books in the series or if the missing art plot is limited only to this book. If that's the case, then I would say that I was left with some questions. So there was one thing about Eva that really bothered me, and that was how she handled getting a significant amount of money from her paintings at one point. To give context here, she knows that it's probably going to be the last money she'll be able to make from the, doing the paintings, which only makes this even worse. It's not like it was the start of steady income and she did this. This was probably going to be the last money she was going to see for who knows how long. And the minute she gets the money, she starts spending it on things. And it wasn't like, you know how if you've went a while and you've had to really budget your money and you suddenly get a little bit of money, maybe you want to treat yourself or your loved ones to something that is special or meaningful or just brings you joy and you haven't been able to have that for a while, right? You spend it on something little that is meaningful. 
people to treat yourselves. That I can get, but this is not what she was doing. This was more like, well, I can't have this money just sitting in my pocket, so let's hire expensive cabs to go everywhere and buy some new hats because our cousin insists that ours is outdated and the horror of that, oh no. Like, it just pissed me off that she was so irresponsible about the money. Now, I think this is a good example of how we each bring our own experiences to the table when we read, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. That's the entire point of reading is we each bring something to the book that we are enjoying. We each have different experiences in life and experiences while reading, and that's great. But in this case, I think many would read that part of her in the spending and not even blink at her actions with the money. But as someone who has spent their entire life, even to this very day, in a constant, never-ending, ulcer-causing stress about finances, seeing her just throw money around for no reason like that was not only out of character for her up until that point, but actually upset me and, and stressed me out and just made me mad. So again, I have... I have a reason for reacting so strongly to it, whereas I think most other readers may not react that way and would just kind of read it and, and forget about it because it's it's not treated like a big deal in the book. It's not like she's suddenly penniless because of her spending. She just carries on with her life and gets her happily ever after in the end, so it was just a blip in the radar that didn't mean anything. But to me, it meant something and it irritated me, you know? I just couldn't stop thinking about the money through the entire rest of the book. I just couldn't stop thinking about how she handled getting some money that she knew, especially since she knew that was going to be the last money that she would have coming in for who knows how long. So what did I like then? I liked the scandalous spinster sisters that are in that town. They were quite fun. I also liked that many of the characters here had very frank conversations and discussions with each other, both of the fun and the serious sort. So it's not something that we often see in historicals, and it just made gave this one something a little bit more to enjoy. I really enjoyed the interactions between Gareth and his brothers, and I'm curious enough about them to continue the series to get their stories as well. The sex was okay. It didn't really stand out to me, but it wasn't horrible. It wasn't wasn't completely fade to black. There were a couple scenes that, not fade to black, but it would kind of go vague and she would talk about it after the fact that, oh, they had just made love again or something, that kind of thing. I think part of why the sex didn't stick out for me was tied into the narrator's voice. And the narrator's voice for the heroine at any point during the book, but especially during the sex scenes, was just a bit annoying and awkward. And during the sex scenes, that didn't come across as, you know, sexy or intense. And that would take me out of the scene a bit. Because it's not like I had any issue with the sex. It was moderate. It was fine. But I think the narration during those scenes kind of pulled me out of it a bit. I will say I snickered at the proposal scene at the end of the book. So he's going down on her. He stops to look up and says they should get married. She's all flustered and telling him they need to talk and this is not the time to, to have that conversation. And he's all, well, I can't leave you like this now, can I? Hold that thought. And he quickly gives her an orgasm before they continue their conversation. She says, yes, of course. But she jokes that now they can't tell people their real proposal story and they'll have to come up with something that's innocent and believable instead. That was just a little scene that just kind of made me laugh thinking of him giving her head and then just popping the question, and seriously, how do you even attempt to tell anyone that? <laughs> oh, how'd you two decide to get married? Oh, you know, he gave me an orgasm. I said yes. I mean, to be honest, that sounds like a pretty damn good marriage proposal to me, but... Did I like this book? Yes. Did I love it? No. Would I recommend it? 
yes, but I think I'd only feel comfortable recommending it to you if your library has it, simply because I'm finding that if I didn't, oh my god, love, love, love a book, I feel bad recommending it to others at the full price. So that's why I says I like this, and I, I don't think that you would find it a waste of your time, but I don't know that I feel comfortable telling you to go out and buy it. As I say that, though, this one might still be on sale for $2.99. If it is, I will have that information on the post. If it's went back up in price by the time you're listening to it, I apologize then maybe do hold off and try it from your library. It's not bad in audio. Uh, like I was talking about, the narrator wasn't my favorite either. I would say the narration was probably three and a half stars as well. I think she did a good job with the male voices and even a lot of the female voices, but for some reason her voice when she was doing the heroine just kind of bothered me. And like I said, during like the sex scenes and that, it was just enough to pull me out of the scene. Otherwise, the narration wasn't horrible, and I would probably listen to her again, but she's not going to the top of my list for favorite narrators by any means. So I've put the rest of the trilogy on my library wish list, but I'll probably wait a month or so to pick up the next book, simply because I find that I can burn out on an author or on a series, or even sometimes on a subgenre, if I do it too close together, if I do it back to back. Plus, I've got a whole bunch of others that I've got on my list that I need to get to and want to get to. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely curious enough to go back and uh, read the story for his two brothers, so even if I didn't end up loving this one, it was still just a good read. Nothing wrong with that. And finally, I finished up Rogue Affair, which is an anthology of 10 novellas. All of them are contemporary romances, and they cover a range of gender pairings as well as heat levels. Also, it's currently 99 cents for a very limited time, so grab it while you can. This is the third time retrying to do this, and my dog will not shut up, so that's going to have to be our background noise for the rest of this, I guess. So my overall rating for this anthology, for the entire thing, is three and a half stars. But there were quite a few stories that I loved. I would say probably uh, almost a, a solid four for some of those stories. There were some that I really liked, so like probably the three and a half stars, uh, maybe down to three, more like three and a half though, to be honest. And there were a few that actually left me kind of skimming them to finish the story. We'll get to all of that. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on each story. That would take forever, but I'll give a quick rundown for each one, focusing kind of like on who the characters are or what the main plot point might be. And if I have any thoughts that stuck out about the book, I will let you know real quick. So first up was Dedication of a Lifetime by Tampson Parker. This is an MM with a black hero who is a chemist. He works in the pharmaceutical field and a ginger-haired history teacher slash school counselor. The two have been married for a while now. So the steam level on this one was quite hot, no complaints here, and I very much enjoyed their quick story, though of course I was left wanting to know a little bit more. But this one was a solid read, definitely recommend it. Next up was Personal Proposal by Ainsley Booth. This one is an FF with a grumpy photographer um, and a younger bi heroine who has been working as a park ranger, or not really even a park ranger, but she was working at a national park anyway. This one is in dual first POV, and it was pretty hot as well. I also quite enjoyed their story and also was left wanting a little bit more. Then we had Work of Heart by Olivia Dade, which is an MF. This one has a black hero. He's a journalist. 
She is an artist, and she has information on her current client, uh, political client, that could land him a big story, but probably ruin her career at the same time. The heat level on this one was, I guess, average. Uh, I mean, for me, it was quite tame. I would say, like, low heat, especially, I think, considering what I've um, read from Dade before on some of her other books. There were some fun lines, which I've come to expect from her writing, but the story was far too quick, and it left me a bit underwhelmed, even for a novella. So this one would probably fall more into that like category instead of the really enjoyed it. Then we had The President's Protector by Chris Ripper, which is also an MF. This one has an older heroine. She's a widow. Oh, yeah, and she's the first woman president. Um, fuck yes. He's a Secret Service agent. He's younger than her. Like, he's in his late, mid to late 30s compared to her being, I think, her early 50s. And he is a former Marine. Oh, and he's also a trans man. I believe he's also Latino. If I remember right, his family, a uh, generation or two back, was from Mexico. This one is in first point of view from the heroine only. The sex is pretty much fade to black, and this was my first time reading Ripper. I like this one, but I felt like the pacing was a bit off, and I had a hard time keeping up with how much time had passed, because it spans most of her two-term presidency, but there wasn't a clear labeling of the passage of the time as, like, the chapters went on. Also, I was just left wanting more, though I did love to see the story itself being told and these characters being written about, and I found their interactions sometimes quite sweet and cute. So again, this one was a, I quite liked it, probably a three and a half star um, novella. Next up was Fallacies and Flirtations by Amy Jo Cousins. Now, this novella was not in my ARC copy, so I did not get to read it. I'm not sure what happened, but, I mean, I'm not blaming the author. I'm sure something came up that kept it from getting put into the copies that were going out to reviewers early. Anyway, that was disappointing. Again, I don't blame the authors, um, but it was disappointing because I really love Amy Jo Cousins' books, and I was looking forward to this one. I'm not sure, though. I mean, this sounds horrible, right? It's a dollar for the anthology, and I'm saying I'm not sure if I want to buy the anthology to get this one novella, but that just comes down to my own personal spending right now, um, which is non-existent. So I'll have to get back to you guys, I guess, if I, um, if I end up reading that one. Then we had The Fourth Estate by Emma Berry, also a male-female. The hero and heroine are both journalists in D.C. They're both writing about politics, and this is kind of a rivals to lovers story. Well, except that there's no sex in this one, so rivals to relationship? <laughs> I don't know, whatever you want to call it. I liked this one. It was also, I think, one that fell more into that three and a half star rating than anything else. Nothing truly wrong with it. I just maybe wanted more from it. And yeah, because it's me, I wanted the sex on page. But that's just me. It's fine if that's, you know, if that's how the author wanted to write it. It's fine if you don't want the sex on page as well. That's fine. Just talking about myself here. From there, we had Such Great Heights by Adriana Anders. This was an MF as well. He's a Marine veteran who was on a personal journey for his lost buddy. She's a small town reporter. They actually went to high school together, and they happened to meet up again while both are on the mountain that he is climbing. She was up there for a story. Not climbing, she drove up there, but anyway. She gets one orgasm, but that's kind of it for the sex here, which was a disappointment because that little bit of a tease was hot, and I wanted so much more from him, which is kind of what I wanted in general here. This packed a bit of an emotional punch from the hero's backstory, and I really wanted to see this one developed into a full 
novel, a full story, because there was just so much potential with these characters and with the story that was going to be told. So I still really enjoyed this one, but damn, I really wanted more from this quick tease, both in terms of the sex and the characters and story. So I don't know. I would say this one is leaning towards four stars, but maybe it's like three and three quarters. Let's go with that. And then we had Dissent and Desire by Kelly Mayer. Damn it, I'm probably mispronouncing your name. I apologize, Kelly. This one is MF. These two are, I believe, both grad students. He's also working at the EPA, if I am remembering this correctly. This one was super fucking hot. And damn, but Kelly knows how to blast the heat. What makes it even hotter, though, is the heroine is the more dominant one in the bed, and she's always the initiator of their scenes. She is, like, very much taking control of her pleasure and gives no fucks about it, and I loved that. I I love that. I love that. It's hot and it's empowering and I just, I fucking loved it. That's all I can say. And as much as I love this one for that, I wanted more. More from the story, but you know, hey, it's me. I would also have loved more sex, even though we had uh, quite a bit here. I would say this novella is really more sex than story, which I was fine with, but I would have loved to see more of their story than just what was there. I feel like I didn't really get to know much about either character in this short bit of time other than they're really great in bed, which again, I'm not complaining about that, but I also, I also did want more. This was my first time reading Kelly, but it won't be my last. The last two are the ones that fall into that, uh, I didn't really, they weren't really for me type of category. So we had Mr. Klein Goes to Albany by Stacey Agdern. This one is an MF. It's a second chance romance. He's a Canadian diplomat of some sort, and she works with a senator. I'm not sure what her role is exactly in his office. Either I didn't notice it or it wasn't said. I'm not sure. Both the hero and the heroine are Jewish. This one has no sex. And this one was one of the two books that I mentioned that I was kind of bored by and ended up skimming a lot of it. I had this reaction to Stacy's novella in the first Rogue anthology from earlier this year, so I think it's just the fact that her writing style maybe doesn't grab me for whatever reason. It wasn't a bad writing, it wasn't a bad story, I just, I just wasn't, it wasn't holding my attention. And the only thing I could say since this is the second time this has happened is maybe it's something with her writing voice itself. We're almost done, it's a good thing because my voice is about to go. So the last one was Take a Knee by Jane Lee Blair, also MF. This one has a white football player hero and a black middle school teacher heroine. No sex in this one either. And pretty much like with the previous novella I just said, I skimmed this one probably more than half of it. And I did the same thing, again, I did the same thing with Jane's novella in the first anthology as well. So I think it might be her writing voice that's just not working the best for me. It happens. It, it hey, it just, it happens. So out of the 10 novellas, I would definitely recommend eight of them. Yes, I'm going to recommend Amy Jo Cousins, even though I haven't read it, just because I trust her so much as an author and I love her work. So yeah, overall, a really good anthology. I think I might have liked this one a little bit less than the first anthology set, but really not by much. I still had the same mix, both in the first one and this one, where I loved some of them, liked some of them, and a few of them didn't quite work for me. Remember to grab this one while it's cheap if you are interested. All total, this is nearly like 700 pages for all of these, so a dollar for it is a damn good deal. As to what I'll be reading this weekend, I'm hoping to finish up Cherish Hard by Nalini Singh. It releases on Tuesday. I do love Nalini's books, both her paranormal and her contemporary, which is what this one is, a contemporary. 
After that, I'm going to be picking up Citywide by Santino Hassel, that collection of novellas that I was talking about the other week. Yep, I'm going to pick that one up. This one releases on Monday. Well, it's technically out right now on the publisher on Riptide Publishing site today, Saturday, but it releases on Amazon and everywhere else on Monday. As to my audiobook, I am almost done with White Hot by Alona Andrews, which I'm very much enjoying, just like I did the first one. I'll give you guys more on some of my favorite parts and stuff like that in next week's episode. And for once, I actually do have my next audiobook lined up since one of my library holds actually came in. Yay! Um, next up will be a contemporary audiobook. You'll have to check back next week to find out what it is. Or, you know, you could just follow me on Twitter or Goodreads because I update there throughout the week. So what about you? Tell me what you are reading this weekend. You can find me on the blog and leave a comment there. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr or Instagram, Goodreads, wherever. Just find me and tell me what you're reading because I would like to know. I hope you enjoyed this week's What You're Reading chat. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and fall in love with some truly fantastic books. Until next week, enjoy TBQ.